Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. I'm Abigail Trafford. I'm a journalist, and I'm your moderator. Today we're going to talk about what is called toxic stress response. It's the impact of severe hardship on brain development and also the development of diseases later on in life. We're also going to explore ways to identify toxic stress and ways to build up resi resilience to it. We have a great panel. First of all, we have Jack Schoenkopf. He is director, Center on the Developing Child at Harvard University, and he'll discuss the new scientific evidence for toxic, toxic stress and the implications for children and their parents. We have Bob Block. Bob is president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and he will explore the expanded role of pediatricians in addressing toxic stress. And Roberto Rodriguez, you come to us from the White House on screen. You are the Special Assistant to the President for Education Policy. And you will talk about how do you translate this new science into public policies. Now, each, each expert is going to talk for about four minutes. Then I get to ask terrible questions of them. And then we open it up to questions for you in the audience and online. So let's start with you, Jack. Great. Well, um, first, thank you to the Harvard School of Public Health for this opportunity. It's, um, I think it's not insignificant that um, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the White House, and the scientific community are coming together to talk about um, new science to address uh, old problems. So the issue here is, uh, what do we know from advances in neuroscience, molecular biology, um, the behavioral and developmental sciences, and this revolution in genomics? Um, about the roots of problems that basically plague um, our society and societies around the world. Problems of intractable poverty, maltreatment, discrimination, all of which lead to greater likelihood for problems in health, problems in learning, problems in behavior. And what's exciting about this opportunity is we're at a tipping point in the development of this biological revolution we're living through in science where we now are beginning to understand in a way we never did before of how early experience literally gets into the body and affects the development of the brain, affects the development of the cardiovascular system, the immune system, metabolic systems, and um, provides new insights, new opportunities to ask the question of what is it about hardship that leads to more illness, that leads to more problems in learning, more problems in uh, decreased economic productivity and a shorter lifespan. So what I'd like to do to start is to just define toxic stress because it's often misunderstood. Um, and the first thing for people to understand is um, that stress is a normal part of life. So we're not talking about the need to eliminate stress in people's lives. And in children's lives, learning to deal with normative stress is part of healthy development. Um, but there are some causes of stress that are much more severe than just the first day in a childcare center or getting a shot at the doctor's office um, that can actually threaten the body. Um, and what we call toxic stress is when our stress response systems are activated and stay activated for prolonged periods of time. When, when we're stressed, what we're feeling, everyone knows what it feels like to be stressed. What you're feeling is your heart rate is up, your blood pressure is up, 
your stress hormone levels are activated, your immune system is activated, your blood sugar is up, and that's good for you because it helps you deal with an acute threat. But when those stress systems stay activated for prolonged periods of times, weeks, months, when it's basically what life is usually like for you, this has a wear and tear effect on the body. It literally disrupts brain circuits as they're developing. It literally accelerates atherosclerosis. It produces insulin resistance, which can cause diabetes. And this is the way that we're beginning to understand how adversity gets into the body. And the exciting part about this is that this gives us some new ideas about how we might respond and protect children much more than we do now. So the key issue about toxic stress is not the cause of the stress. It's the fact that there aren't consistent, protective, reliable, supportive adult relationships to help children get through and learn to deal with adversity. So this is the stress we see in cases of chronic neglect, recurrent abuse, the kind of the unremitting stresses of deep poverty where a family from day to day can't even put food on the table. This is not the stress associated with a bad day. It's not the stress associated with, gee, I had a really tough week at work. This is the stress associated with chronic activation of systems that are wearing the body down without reliable adult protection for children who are very much at risk. And I know we'll get into discussing this a lot more, but what's most exciting and to thank the American Academy of Pediatrics and the White House to be part of a discussion is this is new science that gives us new ways of thinking about dealing with some of the hardest problems we have to deal with as a society. School failure, economic um, dependence, and lifelong health problems that cost a lot of money and also impose a real psychic burden on all of us. So Thank delighted you. to be here to talk about this. Thank you, Jack. Let me turn it over to you, Bob. Thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to be here and to represent the American Academy of Pediatrics, which as an organization represents 62,000 members. Uh, we're very proud of the fact that on our national agenda for children, we have two very important planks. One is the study and the science of early brain and child development, and the other is a relatively new science called epigenetics that we're trying to understand better and to try and see how that plays into the things that we'll be talking about today. We have a phrase that's been sort of my uh, watchword, if you will, for my year as president with the Academy, and it goes very simply like this. Unfortunately, not every child will become an adult, but it is certainly true that every adult once was a child seems rather simplistic, but we as a profession, we as a nation have not probably paid attention to that simple phrase often enough. And we're just absolutely delighted to be able to publish uh, and sponsor the technical report and the, uh, the policy statement from the Academy, which directs the emphasis of the Academy's work toward the work of Jack and, and his colleagues. And thank you so much for your role in, in getting those papers to us. The the thing that has struck me over my many years in pediatric practice, uh, all the way from when I started training, uh, if you count back to medical school, it's almost, almost 50 years ago, there are so many things that are different now. For example, we used to deal with severe infections that are all now preventable by immunization. So we don't have children with meningitis. We don't have children with whooping cough. We don't have children with measles. We don't have children with polio. 
uh, and we don't have them because we've invested our science efforts, our research efforts, our financial efforts, our development efforts into things like immunizations to prevent those diseases. Early in my career, we worried about children with cancer, various leukemias and other cancers who had less than a 10% chance of survival. Now it's exactly the opposite, and they have more than a 90% chance of survival because we invested research, we invested uh, some money, we invested time, we were willing to look at how to, to establish what worked and what didn't work as we went through that process. We now can save children who come to our intensive care units with severe trauma or severe and unusual uh, disease complications. Again, because we have new technologies, we have new medications, we have new approaches to treatment, we have new surgeries to do, because over the last 50 years we've paid attention to that. Now is the time for us to take advantage of the fact that we have new science that we haven't had in the past or haven't been as aware of in the past that really connects the reaction uh, within children's bodies, their brains and their bodies to toxic stress, to adversities, to disparities in the healthcare system, which we don't like to admit, but are bountiful uh, and unnecessary. And I think we have an opportunity now to make some changes. We have a healthcare system in this country that is not salvageable, it is not sustainable. It doesn't matter what your political ideas are, your philosophies are, we can't keep spending money the way we're spending it. Uh, we have more of our gross national product is going to healthcare than any other developed country in the world and yet we have some of the worst results. And I think that one of the reasons we have that is now being demonstrated by looking at the science of the effects on children, of the environment that they're in. Uh, Jack and his colleagues termed eco-biodevelopmental approach to what's going on. If we can do that, we can shift where we spend our money and we can do prevention. And rather than spending all of our money on things that could have been prevented, we're very good at fixing those things, but rather than spending the money there, why not spend it at the early part of life? And that's what pediatrics is all about. And we're delighted to be part of this forum and part of the solution that's going to develop, we hope, over the next several years. Great, Roberto. But I think now is a great segue to you, Roberto. We want the solutions. Tell us uh, <laughs> how new research translates into public policy. Good. Well, thank you, Abigail. And it's a real pleasure to join you all virtually uh, here from the White House. I'm sorry I can't be there in person. Um, we hosted the uh, uh, third annual White House Science Fair earlier today. So I'm here with young people from around the country who are going to be our next generation of scientists. Uh, hopefully that will help move this forward. Uh, I'm delighted to be part of the conversation. I want to um, uh, applaud the Academy for this new statement on early childhood adversity and toxic stress. We clearly at the federal level uh, are really appreciating the imperative now more than ever to shift our policies um, uh, from ones that, that look at interventions later in children's life toward more, that, toward more of a policy arc that focuses on prevention and on early intervention. Uh, approaching this from an education perspective, we know that uh, these uh, early years of a child's life matter greatly. Uh, the uh, uh, quality of adult-child interaction and relationships that they develop with adults early in life matter greatly. Uh, and the quality of the settings in which they spend time uh, certainly matters. So uh, we are really focused on doing a better job 
uh, in these early years, even prior to uh, a child reaching kindergarten, to make sure that regardless of where uh, children are spending time, uh, they are spending time in environments that are um, supporting their development, um, supporting their, their growth, uh, and helping them really uh, prepare for success uh, later in life and later in school. Uh, we know that uh, their uh, development uh, in particular, and I think today's work and conversation around toxic stress is a very important one because we can't just focus on the cognitive development uh, of, of these children, on early literacy and on, and on numeracy. Those other elements are clearly important. But we have to be sure that we're doing more to meet the social and emotional needs of children and doing more to really identify early uh, the impacts of toxic stress and do more to be able to provide uh, the support uh, and the inter early interventions that kids need to be able to uh, remediate any of those challenges. Um, and the sooner we can, we can do that, the better. So we're focusing on an ambitious agenda around that here. Uh, it begins with funding that we've made available through the Affordable Care Act um, to provide more home visits for more of our needy, uh, needy infants and toddlers. Make sure that we're connecting them to a full range of services, uh, including healthcare, early intervention, early education services. We're providing opportunities for them to see mental health professionals, to see social workers, to see others that can help um, uh, facilitate a positive arc of social and emotional development early. Um, we're, we're focusing on how we can transform our child care programs here at the federal level. We have over 1.6 million young children in those programs so, so that those settings are of the highest quality and they really uh, can make sure that our children that are screened early and identified as being exposed to toxic stress can be referred uh, to professionals and to early intervention um, in a seamless way. Uh, we're doing more to really refocus our Head Start program uh, on that uh, comprehensive level of care um, for our youngest children. And Head Start has a history of uh, really providing a strong social and emotional foundation uh, along with the family um, uh, service uh, and support that's needed for our youngest children to succeed. Uh, and I think the most important thing that we're doing is we're looking at how uh, we can bring together uh, our Department of Education and our Department of Health and Human Services and model some of the behavior here at the federal level that we hope to see in the states and at the local community where we have professionals from various perspectives coming together all in the interest of making sure that our kids are getting what they need in the earliest years of life. So we've launched this Race to the Top Early Learning Challenge. Uh, and I can talk more about that during the Q&A here, but we have nine states that are coming together around some real critical uh, indicators around providing greater screening uh, for more of our uh, infant and toddler population earlier, uh, making sure that we're focused on a, a, a high quality uh, standard for our early learning programs, regardless of whether children are spending time in a preschool program or in an IDEA program or in a child care or Head Start program, uh, to be sure that there's a high standard uh, of uh, quality and a high standard of intervention for those children early. Uh, and all focus for us around the goal of uh, really 
preparing each and every one of our young of our young children to succeed as they're entering school. Uh, the imperative for us from the science here uh, of reaching our children early and providing them what they need is stronger than ever. So uh, it's really focused us to fo to do more and push ourselves more around this uh, around uh, really preventative based policy. Thank you so much. Um, now I'm going to ask a few uh, a few journalistic questions and uh, and hope to prompt some conversation. I start with you, Jack. Um, when you talk about toxic stress response, it sounds a little bit like you know common sense with some new numbers. So what's really new here? Because first of all, I wouldn't knock common sense that's reinforced by science. That's a pretty powerful combination, right? Mm -hmm. So. So there, there are two things that are really very new here. One is that our current policy approach to early childhood is basically an education policy. It's about school readiness. And what the science is telling us is that what happens early on affects lifelong health as much as does kind of readiness to learn in school. So this is a game changer for how the policy arena deals with toxic stress. This is for the health committees as much as it's for the education committees. It's as much for the Secretary of Public Health as it is for the Secretary of Education because what happens early on affects both lifelong. But there's a second issue here that's really important is that right now our, our approach, our framework for early childhood policy is an enrichment policy. We provide enriched experiences for children in programs and we provide information and support for their parents. And what the science is telling us is that for some children who are living in very adverse circumstances, enrichment for the children and information for their parents may not be enough. Because what we have to do at the same time is think about how to protect children from the physiological disruptions of toxic stress. So if you have physiological responses in your body that are interfering with brain circuits and accelerating atherosclerosis, providing a good childcare center with rich learning experiences is necessary but not sufficient. Okay. And the, thir the third piece about this is the payback to society. So we measure the return on investment in terms of less kids needing special education, less kids um, you know, not finishing school, more adults economically productive, think and less people in jail. Think about what the return on investment would look like if we started to count how much do we save on less diabetes, less heart disease, less strokes? So this is a real game changer. This isn't just um, you know, some new fad. Also, this is based on decades of research, not just one study. But now, what about the danger of labeling? I mean, I'm thinking of a person who comes, a mother, comes in. Let's say she's a single mom, and she's got several children, and she brings her child to the pediatrician because perhaps has asthma or something like that, and then is told, well, you know, now you've got toxic stress, and you're going to be, it's not only the asthma problem and the math problems in school, but you may be giving your child diabetes or heart disease later on in life. Right. Is that helpful? So, I, you know, if we, yeah. if we were going to put labels on children, I would say we should be very careful. What we're labeling are sources of disease and poor learning in the environment. So nobody worries about labeling lead in the environment as a problem. Nobody worries about labeling mercury or violence as a problem. So what we're talking about is labeling sources of adversity and hardship that create physiological disruptions as a problem. It's not the child necessarily that is the focus now primarily. It's also what to do about the sources of adversity to protect children in the same way we protect children from infection and from poisons. 
Okay, well now, Bob, you're saying that pediatricians are going to have to be on the leading edge of this kind of new approach, uh, sort of multidisciplinary approach to children. But, you know, who's going to pay for that? Somewhere, pediatricians are going to have to get paid for doing this extra work. Um, and does it come from Medicaid and in an era of scarce resources? Do you think the money will go to the pediatricians, but it will be taken away from social services that are actually trying to do something about this problem? It's a good question because I'm frequently, when I approach politicians or policymakers about um, payments or, or, or support, financial support for children's program, they say, fine, we'll be happy to do that, but tell me which other children's program you want me to take the money from. But what we're talking about now is a life course health issue, a life course educational issue. And all, we don't need more money. We need a redistribution of some of the money because it costs this country a ton of money, as I said earlier, to fix things that are preventable. So pediatricians for years have been advocates for children, but now we are also scientists for children. There is a reason for our advocacy that's been evolving over the last uh, couple of decades where we now have the science that Jack's been talking about to support the fact that we're advocating for programs for children. I think that uh, going back to the labeling question, you know, you don't tell a mom that she now has this new problem. What you help her do is connect with resources, which might be very difficult to do because of time and, and money for her as well. So we need policy folks who understand, like we've done with Head Start and other programs in early education, that we need to have programs in early health based on the science information that we have, not just on advocacy principles. And yes, if a pediatrician, instead of spending 10 minutes for a well baby exam, is going to spend 20 or 25 minutes discussing this with a parent, working with a medical home team that doesn't have to be just the pediatrician, but, but other persons in the practice, there is going to have to be payment for that. And we shouldn't be ashamed to say that we deserve to be paid for the work that we do. If you make that early investment on childhood, you're going to have plenty of money to do that because you won't have to be spending the money on the other end of the line. But where's the money going to come from? We're living, you we know, we're, already, we're having cutbacks in services. And it's true, we spend more on health care than any other country. Uh, per person, but do you think orthopedic surgeons are going to say, this is a great idea, pediatricians will make less so you can be paid for this cognitive work with kids? Well, you know, we found the money to develop the drugs that cure cancer in children. We found the money to create immunizations. And it was, you know, it was uh, vendors and, and manufacturers and public money and private money. We found the money to send, you know, uh, spaceships to Mars or to, or to the moon anyway and close Mars to Mars. Is next. Yeah. If we can do that, why would we not be able to take care of our children? Can I? Yes, but everybody yeah. jump in. Here. You know, I, I think <clears throat> what's exciting about this new kind of scientific insight is that it could be a wonderful opportunity to kind of redefine the discussion here. You know, every time we start a discussion with where are we going to take the money from and where are we going to put it, we're, you know, we're in a zero-sum game that, that just kind of doesn't take us to a good place. What we're suggesting here is this, is this is science now that says the brick wall between pediatrics and internal medicine needs to come down, okay? If we're going to talk about how to prevent disease in adults to save a lot of money because that's a huge expense right there, we can't start with smoking, cessation, and exercise programs for 30 and 40-year-olds. We have to start much earlier because the roots of the disease are already starting. So I think the beauty of this is it could be the basis for changing the conversation and saying, how could we rethink 
the way we invest early in life simultaneously for better educational outcomes, better health outcomes, less people in, people in jail. You know, we rarely, there's, there's a growth, the growth industry for building new prisons mm -hmm. hasn't slowed down. We're still building new prisons, okay? There's a lot of money. Here we already have data to show that less people end up in jail if you build a strong foundation early on for learning and for behavioral regulation. So this is our chance to change the nature of the debate, not just where do we take the money from and where do we put it, but how do we rethink the way we invest all of our public resources. And well, this is a good segue to you, Roberto, mm -hmm. because it's got to be done actually in Washington. So have you got a new way of doing this now? Well, I think here the, the important thing we have to take from today's conversation is we have to follow the science here. And the science is telling us that psychosocial development of children is a critical feature of their well-being, of their development, of their later success in life and in school. So regardless of the setting that they're spending time in and regardless of the funding stream, that follows them, whether it's IDEA, whether it's the Child Care Development Block Grant, whether it's a state-funded uh, pre-K uh, funding stream or other CHIP or other um, uh, funding streams, we have to be sure that, that this element is integrated and fully att attended to, um, regardless of where that child's spending time. So I think to Jack's point, uh, we need to do a better job of making uh, use of our current dollars uh, our education dollars, our health dollars, our federal dollars, our state dollars, so that they support this. I think the other second takeaway here in terms of following the science is that we really need to do a better job around evidence-based interventions to address toxic stress. Uh, and again, we can do this in various settings. Uh, it requires us to do a better job of training the early education workforce and the early care workforce so that they can, they can better identify, provide the screening that's needed, and get to those networks of specialists, uh, mental health specialists and other specialists that can uh, meet our children's needs. We need to grow those networks, and we can do a better job of making decisions about how we allocate dollars, like childcare dollars, to grow those networks of specialists and those networks of, of uh, providers around mental health. We have to do a better job around quality standards and making sure that we're embedding this psychosocial development into our quality standards in our existing systems of early care and education. Uh, and we need to be sure that in the rating, rating systems that are being developed for our early care and education settings by over 25 states now, that those rating systems are closely uh, uh, tethered to, uh, to this issue. Uh, so we're doing a better job of making sure that there's a good continuum of quality and that that quality really focuses on the psychosocial development of our kids. So I think there's a lot of work that we have to do to roll our seats up uh, to really redesign these systems um, so that they're really focused on the well-being of our kids first and foremost, not necessarily on um, what they've been doing or the funding uh, stream that they've been uh, that they've been supported by for years. So it's really rethinking our federal investment and and uh, our existing systems that uh, our children spend time in. Great. Now I think let's open up the questions to you in the audience and also online. So let's hear some questions. Uh, I'm Stephen Gilman uh, from the School of Public Health. Uh, 
one th so I have a question for all three of you. It's, it seems that one thing our society has been really good at lately is inventing new forms of toxic stress uh, and new sources of toxic stress. For example, cyberbullying might be a new form of tox toxic stress or the economic meltdown and the impact of foreclosures on families might be a new source of toxic stress. So uh, both from the science end and the policy end, my question is whether our scientific infrastructure is good enough and adaptive enough to identify these new forms and sources of toxic stress. And from the policy end, is our public health uh, infrastructure and surveillance system like we have for new bioterrorism, for new um, biological sources of uh, health problems uh, set up to identify new forms of uh, toxic stress? Take it away. I'll be glad to start. <laughs> I, so I thank you for the question, Stephen, because it, first of all, is an opportunity to clarify um, what we mean by toxic, what toxic stress is. And so toxic stress could be caused by lots of things. And as you've pointed out, um, you know, societies will continue to come up with ways to make life difficult uh, for some and maybe better for others. I don't know. The thing about toxic stress that's really important is that toxic stress is, is what's going on in our bodies, regardless of whether the cause is, is being left alone and, and ignored, being bullied, you know, being a, a victim of, of terrorism with nobody to make you feel safe. Um, there, the toxic stress is the kind of final common pathway, and it's what's happening inside the body. So what that means is that the answer to whatever new, new causes of toxic stress might come are the same old-fashioned answers to the old causes of toxic stress. It's for children. It means having adults who are there to help children get through to help them feel a sense of safety, feel a sense of protection, and most important from an intervention point of view, begin to build their own capacities to be able to deal and cope with stress. And that, that, that's part of the adaptation phenomenon of biology, right? And so I think this is why it's such a powerful concept, is that when you come right down to it, the answers are not complicated conceptually. It's like you look at a situation and say, these children are in trouble, because there is no sense of buffering and protection around them that's going to be there day after day, week after week. And how do we build that? So some of it focuses on programs that are actually working with families and kids. But some of it could really be much more from a public health perspective and from a community perspective is how are we building protective mechanisms in communities where cyberbullying and all kinds of other things are now new phenomenon. How's the community going to kind of helping families buffer kids against that. And in the end, everybody ends up benefiting because everybody ends up getting the, 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 the result of a healthier, more competent, next adult population. So it's, um, it's, it's the beauty of this is it's conceptually it's very simple. The challenge is how do we do that? That's, that's the question where I think we have to look at our existing policies and programs and say, how do we start with the best of what we have and think of that as the place to start. And what can we build new on top of that? And how can the science lead us to some new ideas? Because what we do right now obviously isn't enough for a good part of the population for whom the stresses overwhelm what, what our programs are doing. 
I think in the, in the street that the problems are more acute, that your existing institutions are being cut back. I mean, you cut back the counselors in schools. You cut back the uh, special, you know, special needs person in the schools. Uh, your not-for-profit agencies are, you know, doing more with less. They're, they've got stress. Um, so, so it's not so much... Um, what more can we do? How can we protect what we have and make it better? Or is what your Berta, you're saying, how do you make it more efficient? Thank you for taking my question. Julia Kohler, infectious disease staff at Children's Hospital Boston. Um, as a pediatric clinician and a molecular biologist, I uh, appreciate the magnitude and importance of the paradigm shift that Dr. Shonkov and his colleagues uh, supported by the AAP, uh, have developed to uh, give us a framework to understand the uh, impact of eco-bio-developmental influences uh, on the child as they shape the trajectory of the life of the adult. Um, in my clinical practice, I have become familiar and concerned, deeply concerned about the situation of families with undocumented parents, parents with undocumented immigration status. Um, at present, there are about 5.2 million children in families with an undocumented parent. Um, and the pediatric literature, as well as the sociology, public health, education science literature tells us that these children have unexpectedly good outcomes in terms of um, behavioral issues, in terms of um, low incidence of violent behavior, in terms of health issues like um, low birth weight or um, premature birth. So apparently they live within uh, situations where their toxic stress is buffered uh, by supportive, uh, continuously present adults. Toxic stress perhaps generated by poverty, um, discrimination, difficult housing situations, etc. However, what I have come to understand and what has really greatly concerned me is the um, fear that these children are living in these days since the mid-2000s and greatly accelerated since 2008 where um, their parents are uh, at greatly accelerated rates being arrested and deported for their immigration status alone. Um, and actually, th in the first six months of 2011, 46,000 children, U.S. citizen children, lost a parent in that way. We need your question. My question is, in this paradoxical situation where children are, where the toxic stress actually consists in loss of the pre-existing stable, supportive, parental and adult relationship, what is our responsibility as pediatricians? And this is a question to both panelists. 
and uh, what is the responsibility of the politics who, who make these policies? Let, let's start with the politics of that. So, Roberto, I'm going to throw that to you. Sure. I appreciate the question. I think we have an obligation uh, to be sure that we put the welfare of our children and their development and well-being uh, first and foremost uh, as we as uh, immigration enforcement actions are carried out. I think you've touched on a really important point, uh, and this is something we're unfortunately seeing where uh, in some of our schools, as well as some of our early childhood programs, uh, we're even beginning to see a chilling effect based on some local policies and some state policies even that seek to um, require uh, demonstration of uh, legal status um, and, and end up being a chilling effect for families to actually seek out the support that they need for their children to be able to be successful. So, excuse me, we're, we're trying to do more to make sure that um, our uh, families all know the rights that they have to uh, access a free uh, public education, uh, all of our immigrant families. Uh, this, is a, an, this is a right that's affir uh, affirmed by the Plyler versus Doe uh, uh, ruling under the Supreme Court, and our administration is... Um, issued some new guidance on that um, to really provide a tool for school districts and families. I think in the context of enforcing existing immigration law, we need to really be sure that we're being thoughtful about bringing in uh, all of the support systems for our kids in terms of their welfare and their well-being so that we can minimize the, the disruption uh, and make sure that we have an all-hands-on-deck approach with our existing social service network at the federal level, with state and local authorities, and with community-based organizations, faith-based organizations can provide uh, an important role here too uh, to make sure that uh, uh, the well-being of our kids is not disrupted. Because this is it's a real issue, I think, that you touch on that um, we've heard about from around the country. Uh, and our Department of Health and Human Services has been looking at this issue and what we can do to follow up in working in, uh, in conjunction with ICE. Thank you, thank you. Uh, uh, quite another question. Yes. But, I'm Robin Herb. I'm the director of the forum and one of we're our- We're you. Right, but uh, we have one of the um, uh, features of the forum is that we can take questions from online viewers. I have two questions. Uh, one is a quick one to Dr. Block from someone in Los Angeles who, who tweeted in this question about whether toxic stress can begin in utero. Certainly can. We have uh, good science to, to back up the fact that this whole process uh, begins as the brain is beginning to develop and make connections. There's a very dynamic neuroscience around the evolution of, the, of brain development uh, and uh, de continuing development uh, in, in the fetus. So I think that, and there's good science to support that maternal stress and, and other stressful events during gestation can have an effect on the fetus and can continue on then through childhood. These studies were done uh, during wartime and famine, I believe? Some, some in wartime, and, and another study that was done was, was very, um, didn't take anything that dramatic. It was, it was done during an ice storm in Canada. 
uh, where mothers were isolated from all sorts of resources and they studied and were under a great deal of stress because they couldn't find food, they couldn't get to work, they couldn't do whatever they needed to do. Uh, and then when they looked at, at about four or five years of age at their children compared to children who hadn't gestated during that time of isolation and stress, there were great difference in language abilities and cognitive abilities. Okay. So it can be almost anything. Very interesting. Um, we've gotten a number of questions from people who are you know, out, out in the field really uh, working with children, not necessarily as, um, as pediatricians, but in daycare centers and other kinds of community um, uh, centers. And we have one here from Lori Bozeman, who's the uh, owner-operator at Little Sprouts Daycare in Brunswick, uh, Maine. And she asks, um, what do you see as the role of childcare in either helping to create the toxic stress in children or to help <laughs> alleviate the toxic stress in children? Um, it seems uh, when we had less homes with dual working parents, there was not as much incidence of developmental, behavioral, and social concerns with children. I don't know what you have to say about that. And then, um, uh, but she says that there are strict guidelines that are in place there at, you know, for anyone who's doing daycare about how much they can intervene. Uh, if it, when a facility suggests screening for a child um, due to repeated observation of developmental delays or behavioral issues, a parent has the right to refuse the screening. How do we reconcile these problems with confidentiality? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll take on the science part of this. I mean, this is, I think this is a good opportunity to help everyone uh, remember or understand for the first time that we're talking about basic biology here. So a lot of what we know comes from studies of animals, comes from studies of non-human primates, comes from studies of mice and rats and variety of other animals, and a lot of studies of humans. And, and this has to do with the extent to which the body responds to a sense of threat or stress. Um, and it's important to also recognize that, that a certain amount of stress is unavoidable. So w when the brain is responding to a, an absence of what it's expecting, the brain is not saying, well, this is not coming from my mother, or this is not coming from someone who is genetically related to me, or this is coming from a childcare center. Oh, no, maybe it's a preschool program. No, maybe it's a playgroup in the community. All of, from a brain point of view, I don't mean that there's no difference between some random person and your parent, but brain point of view, it's whether there's a sense of threat and whether something is protecting you or not. So it would, from a science, from, from a science, through a science lens, differentiating what goes on in a childcare center from the home, from the neighborhood, is really not relevant. I don't mean it's not relevant in your life, but the question is, does the body sense safety or does the body sense sense threat. And we know from a huge amount of research on child care and home rearing, independent of neuroscience, is that good environments produce healthy development and poor environments threaten development. Um, it's not whether home or child care is better, it's whether it's a good quality place wherever it has to be and who the people are. And that's really important. This is not about changes in working patterns and who's taking care of kids because children grow up in all kinds of environments all across the world, in all kinds of cultures. And the brain isn't acting differently there. The brain in each of these contexts is sensing either a sense of safety and security or a sense of unprotected danger. And now getting to the confidentiality and how much they can intervene. 
Well, you know, I think you have to start at the beginning. And, and we do have issues of confidentiality. I have issues of all sorts of programmatic things. We have issues of compartmentalizing kids. Are you a child of an immigrant family? Are you a child of the third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation living in poverty? Are you a child who has experienced lots of health care disparities? It really doesn't matter because you still are a child. You have a brain. That brain is developing along what we now know are um, uh, are, are tracks that are determined by what's going on around you. So we have to pay attention to that bottom line first. The problem that the, the questioner brought up is easy. If there's a problem with what the, she can discuss with a family and the family's right to refusal, that's just two people arguing about it. So then we bring in a real public health approach. We get a community behind them. So perhaps the pediatrician who's taking care of that child can, can be part of that conversation. Perhaps a visiting nurse can be called in. You know, other people can. And rather than saying to the parents, you're a problem, what we have to say to the parents is there's some things going on in your life that are having a, a tremendous effect on you and your child. Let's see if we can figure out a way to help and make that situation better. More questions, right here. Okay, you go first. Okay. Michelle Albert, Brigham and Women's Hospital Cardiovascular Division. So as an adult um, cardiologist, um, one of the things that I'm very interested in is um, both Dr. Shankoff's comment and Dr. Block's comments about the different silos in which we exist. Um, so you're pe pediatric silos and we're in internal medicine silos. And it would seem to me that we would need to create a bridge um, between those two in order to uh, advance uh, the agenda um, that has been described. Um, so I am curious about uh, strategies, low-hanging fruit, um, that I, and I, either of the members on the panel that might suggest um, that uh, could be done at the, immediately. I'll kick in first on that. I think that the, the, the wall that separates us is artificial, and it goes back to the fact that all of your patients who are adults once were children. And if we can find ways to communicate about their health uh, situations, both physical health, mental health, their development, uh, that will bring us back together again because, after all, we're all about health of the, of the individual patient and groups of patients together. So I think that Jack and his team are on target when they talked about in, our t in the technical report that supported the policy statement that we have to do... Um, tear down these separations of saying you have one interest and we have another. That's really not true and I think we would agree that our interest is the patient from before birth all the way up to the end of life. That's a concept that I think if we can get public as well as policy persons to understand, we can develop more science, we can develop funding for that science, we can integrate that science into our clinical practices in whatever specialty uh, that we're dealing with. Because the diseases that we know are tied to uh, the reactions to stress are multiple. So I think there's some real hope that this will be a way for us to start focusing on our patient doesn't change on the fifth birthday, or 15th birthday, or 40th birthday. It's the same person. You know, I'd, I'd add to that, and this is, again, a wonderful question to get at this silo issue so those of us who are, live in universities understand the problem of silos of different schools and departments. And in the health care system, people understand the silos of the different subspecialties. And in Roberto's world, there are the silos of the health people and the education people and the human service people and the agriculture people and the labor people. And so, and everybody, nobody is, there is no national association for the preservation of silos. So everybody, <laughs> everybody says silos are bad, we need to cooperate. But what happens is the best attempts are kind of interagency agreements, uh, people trying to kind of set up ways to share data systems. 
another thing that's new about this science is this says, how about everybody looking at the same science that really relates to all of your worlds and think about how that could change the way we might work together rather than think about how we could break down silos because breaking down silos is tough to do unless you have some new reason to kind of get together. And this science mm -hmm. is a new reason. It's as much about health as it is about education. It's as much about pediatrics as it is about gerontology. It's as much about being a Republican as it is about being a Democrat. I don't mean to kind of put a new lens on this, but it's, it's like, it's, it's, but it's, it's one science. And it's one science that doesn't have a magic answer to everything, but it has a new way to start thinking together about different kinds of solutions. But what about resilience? That sounds like Roberto oh. would like oh, to Roberto, say. Roberto, sorry, could you chime in here. Just, just very briefly, I think Jack very uh, eloquently uh, painted the imperative here for us to better integrate uh, our policies and our existing systems that are serving our kids uh, so that we're doing a better job of really pulling together around the science, around what works, and around quality standards and a continuum of quality and care for our kids. I think this is, this is the vision that we have really tried to paint behind uh, our Race to the Top Early Learning Challenge. Uh, we now have nine states that have picked up that mantra. They're working to really review on a comprehensive level their state-level policies and practices and programs uh, to focus more on, a, on a, a, a view of the whole child and on their success. And, and here, the, I think the important lesson here is the psychosocial uh, well-being of our kids and these elements of toxic stress in the lives of our most vulnerable children really has to be on the forefront there. It has to be on the forefront of what we do with our child care system and our child care subsidy system, just as it has to be on the forefront of, of our, uh, our pre-K system, uh, of, regardless of where our kids are spending time. It seems as though there's sort of a search here for... For, the, for leadership, for some, some element to sort of break down the silos and uh, sort of put this together. Is that a job for the president? Roberta, to I you. Think it, I, it, we have to model that behavior at the federal level, right? I think this is why we've said uh, in, the develop, in, in our child development policy here, uh, we're going to have our Department of Health and Human Services, the Administration for Children and Families, lashed up with our Department of, of Education. Uh, and we're going to try to do more to make sure that we're modeling that interagency collaboration. Uh, we've uh, started to give some grants to states to start to do more of this interagency work, this coordination and planning on with kids and their needs and their well-being at the center of that work. Uh, we need to model that at the federal level if we're going to expect that behavior at the state level and at the local level. Because it does, uh, moving away from these silos does require folks to do things differently and, and cede some of, their, some of their territory in some respects to, to a, a, a bigger vision. Yeah, and is this something that the president would make a priority, make a speech about, you know, take a leadership well, role on this? Yeah, it, this is something that's very important to, to the well-being of our kids, but to our broader uh, prosperity as a country. You know, and he, this is why he's talked so much about early learning uh, and, and early childhood development. He has spoken about that in uh, a number of his speeches about education. We had a, 
all of our nine uh, Race to the Top Early Learning winners here at the White House just uh, in December. Uh, and we had both Secretary Sebelius as well as Secretary Duncan welcome those practitioners and those state-level policymakers um, really to be leaders uh, and develop the models that will help move us forward as a country because there's no silver bullet solution here. I think uh, it really requires us having a, a more systemic look uh, at, uh, at, what, at, our, at the well-being of our kids and putting that front and center. Uh, so our, our administration is going to remain committed to that goal. Another question. Uh, the, right here in the middle. We, you were there. Thank you. Uh, Maria Gleemore from Harvard School of Public Health. And it's wonderful to see this topic. I work on childhood roots of, of cardiovascular disease and stroke. Um, unfortunately, basic science does not exactly translate into policy. Um, so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about what all three of you really, what you think the best evidence for specific things that work that we're maybe not doing or we should do more of, and then where, given the purview of what's feasible within a policy uh, framework, what are the really critical uncertainties? What do we need to know in order to design policies that, that achieve what we all want to achieve to care for children? Why don't you start? So um, I, that's a very important question. I'll just give you my opinion on that. I mean, for starters, I think the greatest power that si this science has for the policy world is to try to change the nature of the policy discussion. I mean, I think we all know that so much of the policy debate is a variation on does the money go here or does the money go there? Or how many, how many people can we serve now? How many fewer people can we serve because we have less money? And in the end, that feeds into, I think, a sense of futility that a lot of people feel and hopelessness because the problems are so complicated. The, the excitement about this new science for policymakers, and we've experienced that in states that have really taken this seriously, is it creates a new policy discussion that's kind of filled with the excitement of not fighting the same old battles that end up in the same old places, but begin to think about things in a new way that really do cut across party lines, and that most important, raise issues of what might we do differently with what are always limited resources. And it gets away from the study du jour. It gets away from, oh, a new study came out, so we'll let's use it to either support what we're doing or not support what we're doing, and take this cumulative body of knowledge that's been built up over decades and say, it's really time to start thinking differently. It's time to start being more creative and being grounded in science. And, and you know, we've seen enough examples of this beginning. I mean, I think Roberto's comments are so important that the federal government can, can model certain behaviors, and it certainly has resources that can send to the states. But at the end of the day, it's at the state and local level that something's going to happen or not happen. And this is where we've seen the policy debate change when you can bring people together from both sides of the aisle and think differently about problems that everybody cares about. We have only a few minutes. Roberto, some spe specific on this question. <clears throat> sure. So uh, three things. And again, I don't think there's any one silver bullet here, but there are a few things that can be done. One thing is to do more around home visits for our neediest families, for our most vulnerable families. I think we've seen strong evidence around how that's really helped child development, reduce maltreatment, help improve parenting. That's critically important. I think we can do more around uh, broadening and growing and uh, 
and improving our network of uh, infant and toddler specialists, mental health specialists, um, to work with our child care programs, to work with our preschool programs. That's very important. I think the other thing we need to do is make sure that we're, we have uh, really this uh, element of uh, screening and, uh, and doing more around getting uh, really universal screening. We need to move toward that goal. Uh, this is something that um, we've prioritized as part, again, of this Race to the Top program to say, let's try to have a, a goal of getting uh, better health care and screening to more of our uh, vulnerable kids um, uh, earlier, uh, and regardless of where they're spending time. And I think we're, we're beginning to see states move forward on that. Great. Bob, a few words. Well, I think policies come from a variety of sources. Sometimes they're ideological, sometimes they're political, sometimes they're based on, uh, on, on some unusual beliefs, or, and sometimes they're, they're based on sort of a, an, an answer to a certain very vocal segment of, of society. But when we're talking about children, and we're talking about our children who are going to evolve into our future adults, I think that we find new partners. Uh, pediatricians are finding new partners with economists who can explain the economy of healthcare to us. We're finding partners with business leaders who are telling us they need educated, healthy, young adults to enter their workforce. And I think as we develop these, these partnerships and these collaborations across different disciplines, and if we base it on science, then we have a real basis, if you will, for developing new policies which aren't, you know, this is better than that or this, this, that is better than this other thing. What we're talking about now is, as Jack is, is telling us, to look at the science, to look at what we know now creates this uh, development across the lifespan and start <coughs> paying appropriate attention to it. Nobody can disagree with that because if, if, if we don't move in this direction, we have unsustainability and that scares the living daylights out of me. I'll give you yeah. a very concrete, specific example. In Washington State, uh, uh, a year ago, um, a process started where the people in the Department of Early Learning were trying to take these ideas and create a new way of building capacity for parents to kind of buffer their kids from stress by how they dealt with coping styles. And because other people in the room, somebody said, well, it sounds like those kinds of skills that you're looking at as parenting skills are also the kind of skills that would make people more employable and be able to hold a job. And another person in the room said, well, if that's the case, then why don't we make this program that started to focus on parenting eligible for reimbursement to account for a TANF work requirement because three different, um, three different issues are being addressed by the same intervention. That's an example of one science affecting three different systems by some very simple change in what you do. And that doesn't happen if people have their meetings about how to set up an interagency agreement. It happens when they get together and say, well, what does the science mean for what I do? And it's amazing what magic happens mm -hmm. when people mm -hmm. come together and talk like that. Well, I think this is a good note to end on when people come together. <laughs> uh, it, it, it talks about resilience for toxic stress. And I, <clears throat> I think this has been a wonderful discussion. And I want to thank everybody here, particularly want to thank our, of our panelists, Roberto and Bob and Jack. And uh, I think it's a discussion we must continue. As I listen to this, I think it would be great for older people, too. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all very, very much. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.